Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-42, Yotapian The site is an easily defensible one on a plateau overlooking the Euphrates. Protected by the river escarpment on one side and deep gorges on two others. The fourth side, facing the open desert, is defended by impressive ramparts. It was laid out with the regular trappings of a Macedonian military encampment. A street plan following a strict grid pattern, dominated in the center by an open agora, surrounded by commercial buildings on one side and temples to the south. This description of Dura Europos is given by Warwick Ball. Richard Stoneman also notes that in the narrow confines of its walls, one could find, within a stone's throw of each other, a synagogue, a Christian baptistry, and temples of Artemis, of the Palmyrene gods, of Mithras, of Zeus Balshamin, of Bel, and of the gaudy or fortunes of the city. Even considering the neighborhood, Dura Europos was pretty eclectic. In 159, a wealthy merchant living in Dura commissioned a relief with an inscription. His name was Hiron, son of Malico, son of Nassor, and he hailed from the city of Palmyra. This era saw the zenith of Palmyrene trade, and Hiron may have run the local trade colony. Hiron's son, Wabaloth Nassor, named his own son Hiron. And it was this Hiron who, in the late 2nd century, was granted Roman citizenship by Septimius Severus, possibly for some service during one of his campaigns. And it was Hiron, now Septimius Hiron, who, around 220 AD, fathered a son named Septimius Odenathus. Odenathus's real name, Udenoth, was Arabic for little ear, while his father's and grandfather's names were Aramaic. 
And though it's possible to connect the dots of his lineage, his family's role is tougher to nail down. They may have led one of Palmyra's main tribes, and are sometimes associated with the Omliki. Or their power may have been more urban and mercantile. One historian even places Odonathus among recent refugees, driven across the Euphrates by the Sassanids. Whatever the truth, he'd managed to pull off a figurative or literal coup. His rise to Ras Tadmor, chief of the Palmyrenes, came with the gift of a throne, donated by a wealthy noble named Ogelu. Odonathus' role was entirely novel, and while all the traditional offices were maintained, the Ras Tadmor held overarching authority. It's certainly possible that entrenched elites viewed the change with a little resentment. But then again, they may have been grateful that at least he was willing to step up. To put things in perspective, Palmyra's overlords, the legendary Romans, had just been defeated and their emperor killed. His successor, Philip the Arab, was heading back west after giving gold and territory to the Sassanids. The new Persian king Shapur had emerged from the conflict emboldened, and whether next year or a decade from now, he was definitely planning to return. True, Philip had left his brother behind to manage eastern affairs, but Misik had made clear that regional defense couldn't be entirely left to the Romans. The Palmyrenes already effectively controlled all territories up to the Euphrates, with permanent occupation of strategic sites by organized military units. After taking power, Odonathus took steps to increase the size of his army, mainly by recruiting nomadic tribesmen, as well as the number of heavily armored cavalry known as cataphracts. To Sampsigerimus and the Emesenes, these were welcome developments. Unlike Palmyra, but like most eastern territories, Emes had long ago disbanded its army. Having a strong ally between you and the Persians was a pretty priceless gift, especially when the Romans were much more focused on bleeding the region white than with mounting an effective defense. Now, to be fair, that wasn't entirely true. Since Philip the Arab and his brother Priscus both hailed from Arabia Petraea, that province was spared the new heavier taxation. But that only meant the cities of Syria were forced to make up the difference. Where was the money going? Well, first off, there was trying to recoup that massive bribe to the Persians. Second, Philip and Priscus's home village of Shaba was being given a major facelift. While it wasn't quite on the scale as Severus with Lepsis Magna, the upgraded city of Philippopolis featured a triumphal arch, baths, a theater, a basilica, an open-air worship space called a Calibe, and a walled memorial with ceremonial gates called a Philippeion. As you may have guessed, building a whole new city pretty much from scratch was going to take a little gold. 
And lest we forget, a certain capital was set to celebrate its first millennium, which also happened to coincide with the latest secular games. If there was ever a sky's the limit, money's no object, go big or go home kind of affair, Rome's upcoming thousandth birthday was it. As just one small part, Philip planned to hold massive games, featuring thousands of gladiators and a virtual Noah's Ark of exotic animals. This was really a case of making lemonade since the spectacle had originally been planned to celebrate Gordian's triumph over the Persians. To fund all this, Philip's brother Priscus kept turning the screws from Antioch. And as the years crept by, the eastern pressure cooker went from simmer to boil. While no one was surprised when it finally blew, the source surprised pretty much everyone. After all, it had been a few centuries since the Comagenian royal family played any kind of role in Roman politics. The usurper's name, Marcus Fulvius Rufus, didn't necessarily ring any bells. But he launched his revolt and assumption of power under the throne name of Yotapian. To Samsigerimus in nearby Emesa, that was a name with some history. And you know how much I love this stuff, so please find yourselves a comfortable chair. Back in the days of the Emesene kingdom, Samsigerimus's ancestor and namesake, the priest-king Samsigerimus II, had married a Comagenian princess named Yotapa. Later, in episode B21, we covered the takeover of Emesa and Comagene by Rome. At the time of annexation, in 72 AD, another Comagenean princess named Yotapa married King Gaius Julius Alexander of the territory of Cetus in Cilicia. The couple ended up having three royal children. One child, Gaius Julius Alexander Berenicianus was the grandfather of the Roman usurper Avidius Cassius, which gives me an excuse to repost that bejeweled butterfly of a family tree. The second child was Gaius Julius Agrippa, who served as quaestor in Asia, Praetorian guardsman, and married into the storied Fabian clan. His son, Lucius Julius Gainius Fabius Agrippa, became a gymnasiarch and Pontifex Maximus, before eventually settling down in Apamea. When an earthquake struck in 115, Agrippa was point man for the city's recovery. He used his significant wealth and influence to obtain imperial aid, and also personally financed restoration projects. It's likely, even a century later, his name was recalled with fondness. The third child of Alexander and Yotapa was named Julia Yotapa. She married a senator from the region of Galatia named Gaius Julius Quadratus Bassus. Bassus later served as a legate in Judea, then governor of Cappadocia, Galatia, Syria, and Dacia, 
all under the respected Emperor Trajan. That couple's daughter was named Julia Quadratilla, though nothing is known of her fate. The reason I mention Quadratilla, the esteemed governor's daughter, and Agrippa, the great benefactor of Apamea, is that one of the two was the likely ancestor of the man now calling himself Yotapian. And knowing his ancestry at least gives us hints about his motivations and power base. It's also worth noting that through that marriage way back, Yotapian was related to the priest kings of Emesa, connecting him to both Samsigerimus and the Severans. Last episode, I mentioned how, when facing major regional threats, the cities of Syria could only watch from the sidelines. But now, in the face of Roman extortion, Yotapian apparently thought different. We know virtually nothing of the relevant details, but we can piece together a few fragments. Sometime in 249 AD, Yotapian seized power in Antioch. The emperor's brother, Gaius Julius Priscus, is never heard from again, and it's possible he was killed in the coup. Yotapian apparently had the support of officials from Syria and Cappadocia, at least for the single plank of his imperial platform. Egregious taxation was put to an end, and for the rest of 249, Yotapian ruled virtually unchallenged. He even used the Antioch Mint to make coins commemorating his reign. Along with his initials and royal title, they included the legend Victoria Augustus, highlighting the power of the emperor to conquer. One reason no legions were marching against him was that Philip was otherwise occupied. He'd barely managed to celebrate Rome's birthday before marauding bands of Germans and Goths had completely spoiled the mood. And even if he'd had time to put down usurpers, he'd have to decide where to start. Along with Yotapian, the year saw revolts by the legate Pacatianus on the Danube frontier and some German auxiliaries under Silbonicus along the Rhine. It was enough to make you want to throw in the towel, which is pretty much what Philip did. Philip went to the Senate and offered to resign, but a distinguished senator named Trajan Decius advised him to keep calm and carry on. Philip was so grateful for the vote of confidence that he put Decius in charge of an imperial army, tasked with putting down the revolt of Pacatianus. As the army approached, the rebels killed Pacatianus. Then, the minute he arrived, they elevated Trajan Decius in his place. There's no solid documentation of which sound was loudest. Philip's jaw hitting the floor, his hand smacking his forehead, or the weary groan he exhaled at the news of another usurper. But off he marched out of Rome for Pannonia to give Trajan Decius what for. 
Now, there's no proof Trajan Decius was hungry for power, but with Philip on the way, he prepared his defense. And when the two sides clashed, it was Decius who emerged victorious. Philip was either killed during the battle or executed soon after. And I kind of think he was just grateful for the rest. Trajan Decius returned to Rome, where the Senate confirmed his elevation. The revolt of Yotapian likely came to an end shortly after Decius took power. In a classic carrot-and-stick approach, Decius assured eastern provinces they'd be spared high taxation, then ordered local legions to execute the usurper. It all went down fairly quick and smooth. The only lingering impact was the example. A powerful noble from an ancient dynasty, with close ties to local Roman officials, had seized power with little resistance and ruled in the style of a king. Notwithstanding its short duration, it showed the possibilities among the chaos. For Samsigerimus, Emissa, and the rest of Syria, 250 was the calm before the storm or at least as calm as things got nowadays. Out west, Decius was persecuting Christians, fighting the Goths, and dealing with the outbreak of the Cyprian plague. In the east, the Sassanid king Shapur was putting down a revolt in far-off Khorasan. Meanwhile, Odenathus and the Palmyrene army continued to train and recruit. Everyone knew those storm clouds in the distance would eventually come rolling in. In mid-251, Samsigerimus learned that Trajan Decius was dead. In Abritus, somewhere in Lower Moesia, the Goths had trapped the Romans in a swamp. In the ensuing battle, the legions were destroyed, and Decius and his son were killed. When his son died, slain by a Gothic arrow, Decius had rallied his troops by saying, Let no one mourn. The death of one soldier is not a great loss to the Republic. After Decius fell, everyone probably just replaced the word soldier with emperor. Like Philip with Shapur, Decius's general Tribonianus Gallus made humiliating concessions to his enemies. Not only were the Goths given land and gold, but he also agreed to pay annual tribute. And, also like Philip, he'd returned from the massacre to be hailed as the new Roman emperor. To Rome's allies in the east, it was hard to envision a greater signal of Roman weakness. Which is probably why Shapur decided it was time for a second campaign. The following year, 252, saw the death of Tiridates II. Tiridates had ruled the Armenian kingdom since being installed by the emperor Macrinus. And for the last quarter century, he'd kept the Sassanids from claiming the Armenian throne. Like Ardashir with Shapur, Tiridates had raised his own son, Khosrov II, as a formidable warrior and ideological heir, dedicated to keeping the Arsacid fire still burning. 
But right after inheriting the throne from his father, Khosrov and his wife were killed. According to legend, they were stabbed in the heart by a Parthian noble named Anak. Now, Anak hailed from the House of Surin, the ancient ruling dynasty of Sestan, which had been conquered by the Sassanids a few decades earlier. So, blaming Shapur for Khosrov's murder wasn't too much of a stretch. Anak may have been told, once he killed the king, he'd be made client ruler of Sestan. Instead, he was pursued by Armenian soldiers until he drowned in a swollen river. At the same time, the Sassanids swept into Armenia from the north and south. Khosrov's son, Tiridates III, was only two years old, and the Armenians knew his only chance was to get him to Rome for his protection. Though they got him out safely, there was no one left to rally an effective defense. The assassination had done its work, and Armenia fell to the Persians. In victory, Shapur installed his son Hormizd as the new Armenian sub-king. His title, Great King of Armenia, was a conscious attempt to appeal to Armenian pride. And so much for the warm-up. According to his inscription at Nakshi Rustam, Shapur then attacked the Roman Empire and annihilated at Barbalissos a Roman force of 60,000. So, okay, you can discard that number. This was no imperial army, just the local legions. But either way, the Persians overcame whatever resistance was offered. Even scarier, Barbalissos is inside Coel Syria, about halfway between the Sura River crossing and the major city of Antioch. Like in Armenia, the Syrian invasion of 253 was coupled with a stiff dose of intrigue. A Roman official by the name of Mariades had apparently been suborned, and several histories give him credit for the betrayal of Antioch to the Persians. According to John Malalis, Mariades was an Antiochene councilman, expelled from the city for embezzling funds. At Shapur's court, he'd sought revenge by offering to aid the Persian conquest. There is, in these affairs, a certain historical resonance. The last time an eastern power tried to take Antioch, they also employed a Roman asset. That time, the year was 40 BC, and the asset in question was a Roman general and ally of Brutus and Cassius by the name of Quintus Labianus. Together with a Parthian prince named Pacorus, Labianus helped the Parthians take Syria, Judea, and even Anatolia, nearly replicating the holdings of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. But the conquest was brief, and reversed a year later by Mark Antony's general, Ventidius. Antioch had had some tense moments since then, but all due to Romans fighting Romans. This was the first time in nearly three centuries they were legitimately threatened by a foreign power. 
And again, this wasn't just a provincial city, but a major metropolis of 300,000. It was incredibly wealthy, and perhaps most importantly, the symbol of Roman power in the East. But for defense, it depended on the Euphrates and the legions, both of which had just been overcome. So where in all this were the Palmyrenes? It's actually a really good question. We know from Shapur's later inscription that he'd also attacked, though not destroyed, the city of Dura-Europos, as well as the Euphrates River island of Anna. Both locations held Palmyrene troops along with Palmyrene trade colonies, which implied the Palmyrenes were also under attack. There's a chance they'd fought with the Romans at Barbalissos and just weren't called out in Shapur's inscription. But the short answer is we just really don't know. All we know for sure was the result. Antioch was taken. It was plundered, it was burned, and thousands of its citizens were carted off as slaves. While maybe not as thorough as the Roman destruction of Seleucia on the Tigris, it was likely comparable to the damage caused by the earthquake of 115. Later Roman emperors would record their efforts to rebuild the city. And over the next year, the Antioch Mint failed to produce any coinage. According to historian Pat Southern, this meant that both normal life and commercial activity were temporarily put on hold. So, for the cities of Syria, things got very real very quick. News of Antioch's fall likely came with reports that the Persians had gone north into Cappadocia. But then, weeks later, came new reports that the Persians were moving back south. Their next target, Apamea, was easily overcome, and they moved up the Orontes to Arethusa. Arethusa, of course, had been the original Emesene capital, under the kingdom's founding father, Samsigirimus I. It was also only a dozen miles from Emesa. Samsigarimus, our Samsigarimus, was 28 years old and had spent most of his life as a spectator. The history books could have held a footnote about how the last known relative of the Severan emperors had been killed when his city was destroyed. But, as it happens, the books contain something far more interesting. Facing this existential threat, Samsigirimus likely used every tool he had. His lineage, his wealth, his role as high priest, his ties to the Severans, and his local connections. There must have still been legions nearby, in Raphanea or even Bostra to the south. To rally these forces to Emesa's defense, Samsigirimus assumed the only title that gave him the requisite authority. In 253, with the army of Shapur only miles away, Samsigirimus declared himself Imperator. Imperator. 